I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. My own view in the area of abortion is that I am opposed to it as a matter of birth control or otherwise. The subject of abortion is a valid one, in my view, for legislative action. Uh, subject to any constitutional restraints or limitations. Over the two decades that passed after Roe versus Wade, Republicans won every single presidential election, except for in 1976. But Jimmy Carter became one of four U.S. presidents who never got a chance to nominate a justice, which meant that by the 1990s, Eight of the nine justices on the Supreme Court had been nominated by Republican presidents. Six of them had been nominated by either President Reagan or President Bush, who had each explicitly vowed to help get Roe v. Wade overturned. Meanwhile, Justice White, the only one nominated by a Democrat, John F. Kennedy, was one of the two original dissenters in Roe. Then again, though, Justices Blackmun and John Paul Stevens were still around and were still in favor of striking down abortion bans. The court's newest trend had reverted back to letting democracy handle the controversial issues rather than interfere judicially. This new attitude had allowed anti-sodomy laws to stay in place in the case of Bowers v. Hardwick, a devastation for the LGBT community and the first major defeat for the doctrine of substantive due process since the 1930s. So by 1992, the situation was ripe enough to launch the biggest challenge to abortion rights in nearly 20 years. Pro-life conservatives finally got the chance they'd been waiting for in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But despite political promises, a new split was forming on the court. While four justices were eager to reverse Roe v. Wade, Justice Kennedy and Justice Souter started to advocate a more moderate perspective, which put the swing vote in the hands of one justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. The clip you heard was from her confirmation hearing, when she makes it pretty clear that she opposes abortion. And yet, it would be up to her, and really her alone, to decide the future of women's reproductive rights, the future of privacy rights, and the future of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Sandra O'Connor, President Reagan's nominee to become the first woman justice on the Supreme Court, told the Senate today that she is firmly opposed to abortions. With me, abortion is not a problem of religion. It's a problem of the Constitution. We are one George Bush appointment away from a complete criminal ban on abortion. I believe that we should work for a constitutional amendment to overturn Roe versus Wade. deserve a valid legal response. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. 
In the summer of 1981, President Ronald Reagan had announced his first nomination to the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice. Now, as much as abortion was a huge issue, it was certainly not the only issue at the time. So despite Reagan's promise to choose justices willing to reverse the Roe decision, Justice O'Connor diplomatically approached the topic from the outset and committed neither to protecting nor to overturning the landmark case. Whenever the abortion issue did come up, she focused more on reforming Roe rather than reversing it. And throughout the 70s and 80s, a new question about the abortion issue had emerged. If states couldn't prohibit abortions, to what extent could they restrict abortions? Pro-life advocates argued that if indeed a woman has a fundamental right to her choice, she deserves the opportunity to make a fully informed decision. Due to the complex ethics involved and the fact that the procedure is irreversible, States should at least give an abortion patient her options to help make sure she's making the right decision for her. On the other hand, pro-choice advocates frame the issue as being about access. Once a woman has made her choice, she has a constitutional right to carry it out. So they argue that any legal efforts to limit her access to an abortion disguise themselves as promoting informed consent, but are really a workaround for the purpose and the effect of banning abortions. In Pennsylvania, these debates had culminated in the Abortion Control Act of 1982, which had several provisions that restricted abortion in some form or another. The organization Planned Parenthood challenged the constitutionality of these provisions and filed a case against the governor of Pennsylvania, Bob Casey. Planned Parenthood said that the restrictions went too far, while the governor said that the Abortion Control Act was perfectly fine. Now, one of the main restrictions they fought about had to do with informed consent. The law required an abortion doctor to provide patients with specific information about health risks as well as medical information about the fetus. This information had to be provided 24 hours before an abortion procedure could take place. So effectively, that meant that a woman had to see her doctor and then wait at least 24 hours before returning for the procedure, which was often difficult to do if you were traveling from far away or had little means. Another restriction that was at issue required minors to get a parent's consent before obtaining an abortion. This requirement could, however, be circumvented by a judge in certain situations. There are a handful of other provisions, but the most controversial was probably the spousal notification requirement. The law required an abortion patient to get a statement signed by her husband indicating that he'd been notified that his wife was getting an abortion. So which of these provisions, if any, was too restrictive? And also, how do you decide what's too restrictive and what's not? Oral arguments took place on April 22, 1992, Earth Day. Representing Planned Parenthood, 
was a woman named Catherine Colbert. Representing the governor of Pennsylvania was Ernest Preet Jr. But on top of that, the Bush senior administration wrote an amicus brief in support of Pennsylvania's abortion law and sent the Solicitor General to represent the United States in arguing that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. Colbert went first and opened by summarizing the issue at hand. Whether our Constitution endows government with the power to force a woman to continue or to end a pregnancy against her will is the central question in this case. Since this court's decision in Roe versus Wade, a generation of American women have come of age secure in the knowledge that the Constitution provides the highest level of protection for their childbearing decisions. This landmark decision, which necessarily and logically flows from a century of this court's jurisprudence, not only protects rights of bodily integrity and autonomy, but has enabled millions of women to participate fully and equally in society. The genius of Roe and the Constitution is that it fully protects rights of fundamental importance. Government may not chip away at fundamental rights, nor make them selectively available only to the most privileged women. In that one opening statement, Colbert defended the core holding of Roe, that the right to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy is a fundamental right. And then she went further to say that once it's been declared as a fundamental right, the court just can't take it back. And the government can't chip away at that right by restricting it in all these ways. After Colbert was done, it was Ernest Preet's turn. Now his main job was to defend all the provisions of the Abortion Control Act as constitutional. But his main goal was to have Roe v. Wade reversed in its entirety. But even though Preet had a lot of support coming from the bench, Justice Blackman was still on the court. And he had written Roe v. Wade. He was not going to put up with any distortion of his work. Roe v. Wade need not be revisited by this court except to reaffirm that Roe did not establish an absolute right to abortion on demand, but rather a limited right subject to reasonable state regulations designed to serve important and legitimate statements. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, I'm not so sure that's so important. Roe itself said that. That's correct. That this does not provide for abortion on demand. Have you read Roe? Yes, I have. Thank you. Preet then brought the focus back to whether the provisions in the Abortion Control Act themselves were too restrictive. But it was still unclear what the test would be for too restrictive. Ideally for Preet, the court would use a test that gives the government the benefit of the doubt in determining what restrictions go too far and what don't. But another option was to use a test that Sandra Day O'Connor had suggested a few years earlier and ask whether the restrictions create an undue burden on the woman's fundamental right. But of course, if that's the way you go, as Justice Scalia and John Paul Stevens pointed out, that method presents a new problem. How do I go about determining uh, whether it's an undue burden or not? What, you know, what law books do I look to? Well, uh, this is a, a quantitative analysis, Justice Scalia, and you begin by ascertaining under undue burden 
the increase, whether it's a significant increase in cost such that it broadly impacts and prohibits women uh, from having abortion, or whether it bans abortion. Do you think it refers to the number of persons burdened by the law on the one hand, or the severity of the burden on a particular individual affected by the law on the other hand? Which is the right analysis? I think, Justice Stevens, in the initial application, it's a quantitative analysis, whether there is a broad tactical impact here. The fact that it might... In other words, the number of persons affected is your answer. The number of persons... Regardless of how severe the burden on a particular individual. As as the test has been posited, the the question of whether or not... I'm just asking you to explain to me what your conception of the test that you're asking us to adopt is. It may be that some women would be deterred to some degree, but that is not sufficient to create an undue burden. So what would count as an undue burden? Do waiting periods, parental consent, and spousal notification requirements count as an undue burden? Was that the best test to use? Couldn't the justices simply overturn Roe v. Wade and allow states to regulate abortion as they see fit? This was what the Supreme Court had to decide. It was what Sandra Day O'Connor had to decide. You're listening to May It Please the Court. On June 29, 1992, the Supreme Court issued its opinion in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. This was the case that conservatives had been waiting for for two decades. Justice White and Chief Justice Rehnquist voted as they had done in the original Roe v. Wade. This time they were joined by Justice Scalia and Justice Clarence Thomas, President Bush's newest addition to the court. So off the bat, four justices were in favor of an all-out reversal of Roe v. Wade. They just needed one more vote. Now, Justice Blackman wasn't going to overturn his most famous landmark opinion. He and Justice John Paul Stevens not only voted to uphold Roe v. Wade, but also to strike down all the Pennsylvania restrictions. To them, all those provisions were unconstitutional. But that still left three justices, all appointed by either Reagan or Bush. But Justice Kennedy and Justice Souter were in favor of a compromise. Uphold Roe v. Wade, but still allow Pennsylvania to keep some of its restrictions. Which left the protagonist of this episode, Justice O'Connor. All she needed to do was vote along with the Chief Justice to reverse Roe v. Wade and make it a clean 5-4 majority that would overturn the ruling about a fundamental right to seek an abortion. She said she opposed abortions herself, and could have allowed states to start prohibiting them all over again. She'd already voted to uphold sodomy laws by limiting substantive due process. She could have even turned back the clock on due process reasoning.
But maybe it was because of the principles of stare decisis. That she wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to the wisdom of the justices who came before her. Maybe she was looking for a middle ground solution to a polarizing and divisive issue. Or maybe she considered her own experience as a woman and thought about what this decision would mean to the women of the nation. But above everything, it really comes down to how a justice interprets the law. Their job is to read the Constitution and apply its language to the issues in front of them. Now the cool thing about this case is that by 1992, we started recording the justices reading out their opinions themselves. So here is Justice O'Connor, in her own words. Some of us as individuals find abortion offensive to our most basic principles of morality, but that can't control our decision. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. After considering the constitutional questions decided in Roe, the principles underlying the institutional integrity of this court and the rule of stare decisis, we reaffirm the constitutionally protected liberty of the woman to decide to have an abortion before the fetus attains viability and to obtain it without undue interference from the state. And so, despite her views on substantive due process and her views on abortion, Justice O'Connor voted to reaffirm the holding of Roe versus Wade. The only change in terms of whether the Due Process Clause protects a woman's choice is that Justice O'Connor made it about fetal viability rather than the trimester framework that Justice Blackman had made up in Roe. She drew a new line by saying that a woman has a fundamental right to seek an abortion up until fetal viability. After viability, a state can regulate abortion as long as there are exceptions such as when the health of the mother is at risk. But Justice O'Connor also voted to allow Pennsylvania to keep some of its restrictions. And she adopted the undue burden test, a test that she herself had created. The new rule as of 1992 was that states cannot ban abortion, but they can limit it in ways that do not create an undue burden on a woman's fundamental right. That is still the official test that comes up very often in the 21st century, as new regulations are challenged for imposing such a burden. In applying the undue burden test, she told Pennsylvania that they could require waiting periods. And they could require parental consent for minors. But the spousal notification requirement went too far. Here is how Justice O'Connor put it. Applying our analysis to the Pennsylvania statutes challenged here, we uphold, with some exceptions, four of the five challenged provisions. We find that the definition of medical emergency, the requirement of informed consent, the requirement of parental consent, and the record-keeping and reporting requirements do not impose undue burdens on a woman's right to choose whether she will terminate her pregnancy before viability. We conclude, however, that the husband notification requirement unduly burdens this right and is for that reason unconstitutional. Justice O'Connor's opinion became the official opinion of the court, 
But interestingly, it was not a majority opinion. Sometimes when the court is confronting multiple issues, like in the Planned Parenthood case, there are more than two ways to vote. As I mentioned, four justices wanted to overturn Roe and by extension allow all the Pennsylvania restrictions. Two wanted to uphold Roe and strike down all the restrictions. And three, including Justice O'Connor, took this middle ground approach. So you might ask, well, wait, why didn't the group of four win? Well, sometimes the law gets a little tricky. But basically, it's because a total of five justices, the group of two plus the group of three, voted to uphold Roe v. Wade and strike down the spousal notification requirement. And a total of seven justices, the group of four plus the group of three, voted to uphold the other remaining Pennsylvania restrictions. So Justice O'Connor's opinion became the precedent, but it is technically a plurality opinion instead of a majority opinion. Which effectively put Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, Justice White, and Chief Justice Rehnquist in the dissenting group. Chief Justice Rehnquist was particularly frustrated since they only needed one more vote to overturn Roe and couldn't get it from any of three Republican chosen justices. And what bothered him the most was that O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter were perfectly willing to limit abortions, to get rid of the trimester framework, adopt an undue burden test, all of which dramatically changed Roe, and yet still insist on reaffirming its core holding. Here is Chief Justice Rehnquist reading his dissenting opinion. Nineteen years ago, in Roe against Wade, this court decided that the Constitution establishes a woman's fundamental right to obtain an abortion. And thereafter, the court acted, in our view, as a sort of national legislature on this issue, imposing a complex abortion code on the states. Today, only two members of this court still claim that the court's decision in Roe was correct. In their joint opinion, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter do not say that the decision in Roe was correct, but they they conclude that what they call its central holding must be retained to serve the principle of stare decisis. Justice White, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, and I are of the opinion that the court did err in Roe when it determined that the Constitution includes a fundamental right to abortion. But despite what conservatives were hoping for, Roe versus Wade lived to see another day. The doctrine of substantive due process had bounced back, and although states now had constitutional permission to enact some abortion restrictions, the Supreme Court still recognizes a woman's right to seek an abortion as a fundamental right that the state cannot deprive without the due process of law. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of the Planned Parenthood case, the political pendulum that had been swinging to the right all of a sudden started swinging back again. The governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, beat incumbent President George H.W. Bush just a few months after the case was decided. Democrats would begin an eight-year tenure in the White House, which would see the addition of Justice Breyer and the court's second female justice, 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, commonly referred to as the notorious RBG. These new additions each ascribed to a legal philosophy that was open to substantive due process, at least as applied since the 1960s. Fundamental economic rights are long abandoned, but fundamental privacy rights became more and more enshrined in the nation's history through the end of the century. And as the world prepared to enter into a new millennium, the Due Process Clause was about to enter an era that would bring a new attitude towards an old issue, and another opportunity to reverse a landmark case about homosexuality. We'll talk about the rematch for gay rights in the 2003 case of Lawrence versus Texas when our due process story continues in episode 9. May It Please the Court is produced by Untwist the Facts. Visit our website at www.untwistthefacts.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Untwist the Facts. I'm Alex Akavon, and thank you so much for listening.